Coming soon to a city near you, Vinitaly Roadshow. Have you ever wondered how to attend Vinitaly for free? Are you a wine trade professional interested in a sponsored trip to Vinitaly International Academy or Vinitaly, the wine and spirits exhibition? Coming soon to Princeton, New Jersey, Harlem, New York, and Chinatown in New York City, Cardiff in Wales, London in England, and Roost in Austria. We'll be giving away our new textbook, Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0. Find out more about these exciting events and for details on how to attend, go to liveshop.vinitaly.com. Limited spots available. Sign up now. We'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and my guest this week is Chiara Lungarati, who's the doyen these days of uh, Lungarati Winery. Chiara, welcome to the show. Hello, Steve. You know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Lungarati, and I've known the brand now for over 35 years, is that you're located in Torjan in Umbria. Can you tell us a story about Torjano and uh, the role of Janice? Well... Torjano is a tiny little village in the really heart of the green heart of Italy, that's Umbria. We are between Perugia and Assisi, and the name Torjano comes from a tower that during uh, uh, Roman time was dedicated to the Roman god Janus, the god with the two faces. And uh, so, because of this... uh, this tradition was also the reason why my, my, my parents decided to use the name Torre di Giano, so the tower dedicated to Janus, as name of one of our wine. That's a, a white, fresh, crisp white wine called Torre di Giano. And one of my favorites, and I just love the story and like telling this. Thank you. One of the other things that defines Lungarati, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail, but let's start at the top with, um, you have a museum. Can you tell us about the museum, how that developed, and who comes there, and if somebody listening to this wanted to come there, how they would go? In the 60s, my parents were traveling all around Europe to see how things were developing about wine in other countries and in other wine areas. My father realized that in every single wine area, important wine area, there was either a museum or a research study center about wine. So once back home, he decided that even Torgiano and even Umbria had to have its own wine museum. My mother is an art historian. And so for her at that time, museums were just major arts museum, painting, sculpture. We are talking about the 60s. And, uh, but my father insisted that even here, we needed a wine museum. So my mother started to create a wonderful project that uh, 
And in our museum, we rebuild the history of wine and uh, of its links with all the civilization that rose on the Mediterranean shores since the very beginning till nowadays. And these are going through archaeological collection, going through ceramic collection from Middle Age to nowadays, uh, engravings from Mantegna in the 15th century to Picasso in the 20th century. So five centuries of uh, engravings all about wine and wine theme. And then there is the ancient editing collection and, of course, also an ethnographic collection about uh, how important has been the way of cultivation, the vineyard, and then the winemaking in our area since the last, in the last 2000 years. So in this museum, we truly find the importance of wine and uh, for our tradition, for our history, for our, for our everyday culture. And the uh, New York Times considered the museum, the wine museum in Torgiano, the best of Italy and one of the most important worldwide. Wow. Okay. It's on my bucket list. I have not visited it, but, you know, lifelong reader of the New York Times, so um, come, come. <laughs> the other part of the museum is you also expanded it to include olive oil. The great, the great wish of my father before he passed away in 1999 was to give to the other great column of Umbria agriculture, that's extra virgin olive oil, the same promotional tool that uh, he had given, that our family gave to wine uh, almost 25 years before. Wine Museum was open to the public in 1974, and uh, uh, Olive Oil instead was open in 2000. My mother really wanted to, and all the family really wanted to accomplish to this great desire, and so was uh, in an old mill in within the, the walls, the city walls of Torgiano, the town walls of Torgiano, was open this other museum where there is everything about the history of olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. It's different uses through the centuries from the, the not just as nourishment, but also as source of light. It's a votive uh, importance. It's uh, a pharmaceutical importance as well, and also in the cosmetic. So there are these two great products of our land, of our territory, wine on one side and extra virgin olive oil on the other side that are really announced in these two little museums that are two little jewels that tourists love to come to visit. And there's a third third uh, leg on that stool, and that is the enotourism. We've converted the house and the vineyard for people to stay. We actually have... Uh, worked a lot on wine tourism. We have, uh, we have been a really pioneer in this. Our family has been pioneer in this sector in Italy. It was 1978 when uh, my parents opened a little inn in the center of the village of Torgiano uh, that soon became a five-star boutique hotel where it could be possible to host people coming to visit the museum or the winery because in Torgiano there was not even a trattoria where people could stop and grab a bite to match with our wines. 
then uh, we opened in 1994, we opened the first Agriturismo, old farmhouse in the middle of the vineyards, where people could find a much more uh, related to the nature lifestyle, uh, surrounded by the vineyards of Rubesco, with a very uh, easygoing, uh, everyday life compared to the five-star boutique hotel. Uh, today, we decided not to run directly the, the hotel, but we continue to run directly the Agriturismo, that's much more related to, to our lifestyle, to a winemaker's lifestyle, because country and vineyard especially, it's the most important part of our work, of our everyday work. So let's let's jump right to that and the idea of sustainability, the heritage, legacy, all of these things. There's three generations in the Lungarati family so far. And uh, you guys have really, um, if not pioneered, certainly adopted and, and led the transition to sustainable production in Italy. Can you talk more about that, the role that that plays and how that's impacted the way you run the winery and the way you produce your wine. Steve, I strongly believe that uh, we borrowed the land from our, from the previous generation to pass over to the following generation. That was my father taught. Actually, our family is deeply rooted in this part of Umbria since a couple of centuries, till the end of the 18th centuries. But was uh, and wine was just one of the several production of the estate. Was my father that after World War II decided to focus on winemaking, and uh, the respect of the environment is part of our DNA because uh, from the environment depends our future life, and we see especially in these last years how difficult the summers weather has been and how much we have to deal and how much we have to work in order to have a great product, great grape to give good wines. Anyway, what we do, it's uh, something that's not just started a couple of years ago, but uh, for instance, we have a five metal station among our vineyards here in Torgiano and one in Montefalco. And the ones here in Torgiano were settled down already in 1996. This, in those years, helped us to reduce drastically the number of the treatments in the vineyard. We do not use herbicide, but we work below the line to plug out and plug in later the soil to take away all the weeds. In this way, we obtain two objectives. First of all, to take away the weeds. And then, working the land, we allow the roots of the vines not to rest on the surface, but to go deeper in the soil to find the nourishment and especially the water they need in tough years like 2022 has been. In the middle of the, of the lines, we usually pass soon after the harvest the manure that's the organic fertilization that we use together with cover crop because we do not use chemical fertilizer in our vineyards. And then, uh, of course, beside that, uh, 
great respect uh, above of our landscape uh, in terms of maintaining all the little woods that for us are so important, not just because of the woods by themselves, but because uh, they help us to gain the biodiversity. We can say that uh, all the different, we try never, when we prepare um, a new vineyard, we, does, we never pass with a, with a plug and we don't turn over the land, but we go just with a reaper in the in the in the depths to to move. In this way, we keep the the fertile soil on the in the surface and the unfertile soil in the depths of the soil. This is, is very important as well to maintain the proper fertility of the soil, respecting it. So. There are many, many different things we do. We, of course, uh, also the, 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 the canopy management is very important in order to reduce as much as we can uh, the impact of the, 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 the changing of the climate. For instance, uh, we try to, to pass with kaolin or zeolite on the clusters to avoid they can be get burnt by the sunshine, by the summer sunshine. One of the critical issues that everyone is facing these days, and particularly so um, in Italy, um, obviously is, is a challenge of global warming. And one of the ways it impacts grapes is the intensity of the sunlight uh, on the bunches. And so one of the tools that many winemakers are using, included, is canopy management. Can you talk more about that too? help preserve the freshness, acidity, and balance of, of, of the grapes? Absolutely, because uh, first of all, we do not do the leaf on the sunny side, but we try to keep uh, the cluster cover, but at the same time having the air passing through the canopy, thanks to the way how we pull it up and in the way how we keep it up for all the, the, for all the season. And then in summertime, we pass on the clusters with zeolite or kaolin in the, in, so that we manage to co- we cover with this kind with, with this powder that soil. Yeah, kaolin is just clay, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a rock turned into powder. And uh, we cover the clusters with a white, it's, it is white, and so it reflects the sunshine. That's like suntan lotion for grapes. It's exactly. It's a sort of. I have to use a lot of it uh, uh, as I'm clear skin in, uh, for myself, but uh, we have now to use a different kind of that, that's zeolite and kaolin on the clusters. In this way, the clusters don't get burned and you maintain all the fruity and the freshness, the acidity that are requested in long aging red wines. Okay. You also talk about um, part of this being carbon sequestration and vine height. Can you talk about that? Carbon sequestration, it's another great uh, topic for us. Um, And uh, for this cover crop is something that really, really helps a lot because uh, we try, um, when we we plant the cover crop, then uh, uh, we fix uh, it, for instance, all the leguminous, legumes help to fix uh, the nitrogen in the soil, but they also fix, uh, in, the, the, in the plant, it's also fixed carbon. When uh, 
it's uh, the, the the season is changing and the heat is coming. Uh, it's almost when the when the cover crops arrive to the 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 length of the first wire, and at that time we cut it and we bury it. In this way, we manage to fix the carbon of the of the cover crop again in the soil. Uh, during winter time, every two lines, one is sowest uh, with a different seeds, and the other is with the cover crop, manure and cover crop. So it's another way how to fix the carbon. We try to be extremely attentive in this. Because uh, I think that's something extremely important. Before we were talking about sustainability, I, I spoke about sustainability in the vineyard, but also sustainability at the winery is so important. We have uh, almost uh, 1,300, uh, 1,370 something like square meters of solar panels to provide the energy we need at the winery, we cover just 40%, more or less, of our everyday energy need. But we are going to implement in 2023 and 2024, we are going to implement the surface of the, of the panels, uh, thanks to another building we have not far away from the, from the winery. And then uh, also the use of, of uh, Light glass is very important. In 2021, we turned from uh, the traditional 650 grams bottles for Rubesco and Torrevigiano, and not just for this wine, but also for the Loom white and red, we turned uh, for, to 420 grams. Uh, so we have all light bottles, and this really helped us to reduce our carbon footprint in a very important way. Beside that, the glass, it's a big part of the glass is recycled, almost 70%. And it comes from a, a glass factory that's in, uh, based in Umbria. So it's almost at zero kilometers, not zero, but just a few kilometers. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family. The Lungarati commitment uh, in uh, sustainability, it's also uh, demonstrated and also witnessed uh, by the certification we got. We got the VIVA certification for Torgiano Estate, while in our Montefalco Estate, just 20 hectares uh, in the other DOCG of Umbria, we have been growing the estate organically since 2010. And we are certified organic, of course. But uh, while everybody knows about uh, organic certification, Viva is something typical of Italy. It's a certification wanted by the Ministry of the Environment, Italian Ministry of the Environment, and certifies the estates according to four different parameters. The air, so the carbon footprint, the water, that's the water footprint, the soil, that means the soil biodiversity and the soil preservation, and then the what they call environment, that to say 
all the social impact that the estate, that the, 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 the our family estate has on our territory. So it, the people that work with us, uh, that they all are regularly employed, all the laws are respected, and then um, what we do for our community. That's, of course, not just the wine museum and the olive oil museum that brings a lot of visitors every year to Torgiano, and that's something very important from the total economy of the, this little village, but also, for instance, uh, many other things that we have been doing in these last years for the community, like building the the um, the, the seat of the Carabinieri that otherwise would have left Torgiano. And uh, this is very important for the local community because in Italy, there is always uh, two, two important uh, pillars of, uh, the, uh, of, the, of uh, each single village are the church with a priest and the caserma dei carabinieri with a local maresciallo. So it's something important we did for our community. Okay. One of the changes that you've made is uh, you've changed the structure of importation into the U.S. Can you tell us how that happened, why that happened, and how you are structured now? Well, um, since uh, the beginning of, la- of this year, so since uh, beginning 2022, we decided to go directly to U.S. market. And uh, that's uh, because uh, in this way, we can work on the brand value. We can decide strategies directly with the distributors for the brand future developments. And of course, we can also short the wine's time to the market. Even thanks to our to the deposit we have in New Jersey, to the warehouse we have in New Jersey, so that we are able to avoid to go out of stock on the market. And in these last years, this we saw, especially after 2020, we saw that this was a big problem due to the to the lack of the containers that all the world went through. Uh, that's our, the reason why we decided to to do that. And uh, I have to say that uh, we start and we are looking forward. To see. So when, when was the change actually made from a, a traditional agent? Uh, the decision was uh, taken uh, at the beginning of 2022, uh, and the organization started after in Italy, and the first order was shipped in summertime. Oh, okay. So this is all very new. It's very, very new. Yes. Your nephew is managing it as the, the U.S. Nephew. Yes. My nephew, Francesco, is our export manager, and... Uh, is the one who travels a lot all over U.S. But, of course, this kind of organization really requires a constant presence on the market. And, of course, we also have a person based in U.S. who takes care about that. So one of the the big questions, I I see this as an issue that a lot of suppliers have, which is to say, "Hmm, I don't feel I'm getting enough attention to my brand. I think I'd be better off if I managed it myself. But... The flip side of that is the reason we went with an agency um, brand structure in the first place. In your case, it was like it wasn't a decision; it was the way things were done for many, many years. Um, was uh, because they had the relationships and the distribution with the distributors and the distribution. 
which is great. Now you have a track record of distribution in the U.S. strength in certain markets. Um, you're now responsible for your own future, which means your own future is dependent on the things that you do that a traditional agency brand importer won't do. How are you going to handle things like PR, distributor relationships, sales meetings, uh, work with in-store tastings, discounting, all those kinds of things that are we are planning them with all. We are all these things planning with the with our uh, distributors in different states, and uh, there is uh, Francesco and this person that works uh, with us uh, um, in uh, in U.S. market that are taking care about this, all these things and all these aspects, and of course concerning PR, uh, it's something that we will start to do directly as we used to do many years ago okay um change gears a little bit too you talked about montefalco um being the other doc area in cumbria um montefalco or sagrantino de montefalco is what i would call a challenging grape it's always had this history of being extremely tannic and that could be off-putting to a lot of people talk about why you uh purchased or set up the uh, Sagrantino estate and what your philosophy is with those wines. Lungarati has always been synonymous of Umbria and uh, Montefalco is an important part of Umbria. That's the reason why in uh, 1999 our family decided to invest in the other DOCG area of the region even because uh, the DOC arrived in Montefalco in 1979 also thanks to Giorgio Lungarotti, who was driving around Umbria, the president and the vice president of DOC committee, to show them how what a great wine country all the region is. So um, we decided for this reason to go to Montefalco, and we bought uh, this uh, just 10 hectares at the beginning, and then uh, soon after, we doubled the surface, and today it's almost 20 hectares surface with a winery just in the in the middle. And it's a winery that's completely gravity underground, and all the ground floor is that is dedicated to hospitality activities. Montefalco uh, today it's a it's a it's a well known it's very well known area, especially Sagrentino is a, a well-known uh, varietal in U.S. And this, I have to say, I guess that's an that's a, a extremely well-done communication job um, operated by the Consorzio di Montefalco on Sagrantino. Sagrantino, it's like a, a wild horse. You have to tame this horse before riding. And how can you tame? You tame, first of all, in the vineyard, working on the proper yield per plant. And the second point, you tame in the winery, paying a great attention to the temperature of the fermentation and especially of, especially of maturation paying a great attention to the length of the maturation, paying a great attention to the kind of wood you use 
to age the wine. And of course, to a long time in bottle before releasing it on the market. So thanks to all these uh, little uh, uh, things we, we pay attention to, we managed to have an extremely enjoyable to drink Sagrantino. And so that's rather, it was rather unusual for these such full-bodied and so rich in polyphenols varietal. I'm very glad that the style of Sagrantino today has changed compared to what it was 20 or even 10 years ago. And uh, it has come towards a style more elegant with a longer life in face. And I'm very confident that this will be more and more um, the, the trend of uh, that great area as well as the whole region of Umbria, a region that uh, it's really uh, a new frontier of uh, Italian winemaking, not so well known in its complexity from many markets around the world. But it does have that, that long-term history of doing it. It's, it's not like um, uh, Bulgaria, where it was marshalling, I think, before they started planting grapes in there recently for the quote-unquote super Tuscans. But that's something that you guys have done, too. You had done some blending and not pure Sangiovese expressions. And that was pretty innovative at the time. I imagine it rocked a lot of people's boats. Well, uh, actually, the very first blend of Sangiovese with an international varietal, that's Cabernet Sauvignon, was uh, created by my father in 1977. You have to know that uh, international varietals had disappeared from Umbria after the phylloxera. And, uh, the, um, and so my father decided to reintroduce first Cabernet in the 60s. And then in the very early 70s, he reintroduced Merlot, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Pinot, Pinot Grigio, or Pinot Gris, uh, Pinot Noir, and, and other varietals to see which result could give in our area. He saw that most of them were giving very interesting results, while some others, like Gewürztraminer, was not. So the Gewürztraminer and the others that were not giving good results were cut and regrafted soon, while uh, all the others we continued to uh, to, to, to cultivate even today, even if uh, in, a, in a smaller part of the estate compared to the indigenous varietals. But uh, Cabernet Sauvignon was uh, found a great climate and a great terroir here in Torgiano. And uh, so uh, my father decided to uh, create uh, San Giorgio, that was a blend uh, uh, of uh, Sangiovese and, uh, and Cabernet. The name was after the name of the vineyards of Cabernet Sauvignon that at that time was called San Giorgio. Today, San Giorgio is 50% Cabernet and 50% Sangiovese coming from Vigna Monticchio. That's the vineyard from which come our most iconic wine, the Rubesco Riserva Vigna Monticchio. That's our flagship. So speaking of Rubesco, that was also um, 
I think, an innovative thing at the time, um, still is, I guess, your uh, probably best distributed product or SKU. And it's a blend of Sangiovese and Corino, right? Yes, it is. The very first vintage of Rubesco released on the market was 1962. This year, we are celebrating the 60th anniversary of this wine. And uh, mm, it was uh, already since then, it was a blend. You have to imagine that in those years, in Italy, the wine were called either with the name of the territory, Chianti, Barolo, or with the name of the varietals, that to say, Sangiovese, Aianico, or, or Barbera, and whatever. But that was a blend and was coming from a territory that nobody knew. And therefore, my father decided to create a fantasy name, to give it a fantasy name. And my mother invented the name Rubesco that comes from the Latin word rubescere. That means blush. And what's nicer to blush for a nice glass of wine? Oh, wow. I hadn't heard that story. That's great. (laughs) You were blush wine before blush wine was cool. And, uh, and today, uh, Rubesco, the young, what we call young Rubesco, is a blend of 90% Sangiovese and 10% Colorino. Why its a reserve version comes from a single vineyard called Vigna Monticchio, and it's 100% Sangiovese. Cool, perfect. And it's considered one of, one of every year in Italy, there, there are many, some important guys that are whose scores are crossed and from the result of the scoring of these six different guys very important in uh, in Italy uh, there is a they make a ranking and the Rubesco Riserva Vigna Monticchio is always uh, among the first 10 red wines of Italy sometimes it's number 4 sometimes it's number 3 sometimes it's number 1 sometimes it's number 2 depending on the vintage cool it's one of my go-to wines and uh... Um, if you haven't had it, um, definitely one you should try. Uh, we're coming to the end of the time allotment that we have here. And one of the ways I like to end my conversations is with a question about what's the big takeaway. We talked about a number of things and how it's impacted Mugarati and the evolution from when your um, father had started the vintage. You're in the third generation now. Um, what is the big takeaway from people listening to this that, that they can put to use immediately? You've done so many things. But if somebody was going to take away one idea, what's the most practical one that we talked about? In this, uh, especially in this last decade, uh, since the beginning of 2000, but even before, as, uh, as it was the examples of the previous generation that uh, we always have very clear in, in front of us, uh, it's uh, how to turn um, a family estate Coming from Umbria, a wonderful region, the green heart of Italy, whatever you like, but not a well-known region, into a winery that exports in more than 50 countries around the world and that's recognized for its quality products. Well, what we do and uh, what we try and we apply to do every day is to update our knowledge 
continuously about the scientific knowledge in the vineyard as well as in the winery in terms we make research program in terms to improve our wine wines year after year but always keeping in clear who we are and where we are from and of course having the opportunity once you are in Italy to come to visit us you can discover the everyday great passion that all the people working with us share with the family that's the secret wow i love it i love it <laughs> well thank you very much we've been uh, speaking this week with uh, Chiara Lungarotti who is the second generation of the Lungarotti family where transistor her sister uh, Teresa ran the winery, I guess, for many years before you. She's focusing on the, uh, the museum and the agritourism thing. Thank you very much for sharing your time. I, mean, I see you all the time when I go to Verona. You guys are always among the aqua wine top 100 because of Rubesco and all that. And I kind of always expect that you're going to be there. But it's a story that I think a lot of people need to know about, about Italy that don't. I kind of feel lucky because I have a history working with the winery. But... Um, most people don't. This is an opportunity for them to get to know. So, Chiara, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Thank you, Steve. It has been a great opportunity you gave me to tell about our family and uh, and and what Slungarati stands for and what we do every day. So, thank you so much and I'm truly looking forward to see you again soon, not just in Verona, but also in Umbria. Thanks again for listening. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast.